need to turn to uh, God's Word now this evening, and we're turning back to Zechariah, where we were this morning, but we're looking tonight at chapter 3, the chapter before the one we had this morning. Zechariah and chapter 3. This is another one of those visions that God gave to Zechariah. And we read, He showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you would invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And may God speak to us again tonight through his word. And if you were here this morning, you'll know we looked at Zechariah chapter 4. Tonight we come back at chapter Zechariah chapter 3. This morning we were looking at the uh, man called Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Judah. And tonight it focuses on the other leader. There were two main leaders at that time, Zerubbabel and then Joshua, who was the high priest. Uh, and this chapter focuses on Joshua. And again, it's one of the visions that Zechariah had. Now, to help us to think about what this chapter is about, I'd like to ask you a question and think about this. And I think the ladies may answer this in a different way to the men. How often do you say to yourself, what shall I wear? What shall I put on for this function? What shall I wear on that occasion? I want us to think about the importance of clothes and what we're going to wear. Say there's a wedding or something coming up, and you've got an invitation to go to the wedding. Well, if you're like me, and I think most men, you'll go to the wardrobe, pick out a suit and put it on. If you are like my wife and probably many other women, you'll say, I've got nothing to wear. And so I say to her, well, you've got a wardrobe full of things. What do you mean there's nothing there? Oh, no, she said, I've got nothing I can wear to that occasion. And for years, I thought, this is just stupid, because I'm a man. 
Then I began to realize what she actually meant. What she meant was, I got nothing that I think is appropriate for that particular occasion and that I think I ought to be wearing to go there. Whether it's a wedding or a, a job interview or a school uniform or whatever it may be, we need to wear the right clothes for the right occasion. I want to tell you of one occasion when, when I got that wrong and what I did about it, what I learned from it. Quite a number of years ago now, I went on one Saturday to a preaching rally. That was in the days when they had preaching rallies on Saturdays. Uh, and it was quite away from where I was living. And it was a Saturday afternoon and I was reasonably young at the time. Uh, and I went dressed very casually. I think a pair of jeans, open neck, casual shirt, and, uh, and that was it. And uh, it was a packed church. The preacher there was someone I, I wanted to hear. It was also someone I happened to, to know quite well. Uh, and I went along to sit in the congregation, quite a large church, packed out so I could hear the preaching. Before the service started, uh, the preacher came up to me and he said, I want you to come in the pulpit with me to read and pray before I preach. And I said, no, can't do it. Now, he's the kind of man that it's very difficult to say no to because he doesn't accept the answer, no. He said, yes, he said, I want you there to read and pray before I preach. I said, look how I'm dressed. What are the people going to think? Now, this was in the day, not so much the case now, when to be in a pulpit, you needed to wear a, a white shirt, a tie, a smart suit, uh, and you needed to be appropriately dressed. Things, I think, quite correctly, are rather different now. But I said, no, I can't do it. He said, yes, you will. So oh, what can I do here? Now, I happened to have a friend with me who was about the same size as me. And I looked at him, and he was quite smart. I said, could I borrow your trousers and your shirt? And he said, what? He said, well, what on earth are you on about? I said, can I wear your clothes so I can go in that pulpit? And we went round behind the back of this chapel where no one was. We changed trousers. We changed shirt and his tie. I came in in his clothes. He came in in mine. I don't think people would have known the difference. Now, why did I do that? Because I felt I wasn't appropriately dressed for the occasion. To stand before a few hundred people in that congregation in an attire that I felt was inappropriate made me feel embarrassed and felt I couldn't be in that situation. I had to look right. Now, why am I saying that? Because what I wanted us to think about tonight is this. If we get embarrassed or uncomfortable by wearing the wrong clothes before people, what clothes can I wear to stand before God? Because one day we will all have to stand before him. What can I wear to stand before God? And that really is what this chapter is about. Let me just tell you something of the, the background of it. As you mentioned this morning, Zechariah was the uh, prophet who prophesied to Judah after the exile. And he had a number of visions. And in this vision, he has a vision of a heavenly courtroom. And there are various people involved. We see here the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the judge, and he's representing God. Now, quite often in the Old Testament, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, as many of you will know, means it is an appearance of Jesus before the New Testament, before the Incarnation. Now, whether that's the case here or not, we can't be sure. It may be, but it doesn't have to be. 
But whether it was Jesus or not, it was an angel who was representing God as the judge in this celestial courtroom. And then we have Joshua there. Now, Joshua was the high priest, nothing to do with the man who fought at Jericho. He was the high priest at the time, as such was responsible for the worship of God, for the spiritual well-being of the people, and he was in the dock. He was the one who was accused. And then we have Satan, Satan the accuser. And that is the meaning of the name Satan, of course, the accuser. And he was accusing the high priest before the judge. Um, What did he accuse Joshua of? Filthy garments. He accused him of his sin, his defilement, his unworthiness to be a high priest. In other words, Satan was saying to Joshua, who do you think you are as the high priest? Who do you think you are leading this people in the worship of God? Just look at yourself. Look at what you're like. Look at your filthy garments. Look at your sin. Look at those things that you do wrong. He was accusing Joshua so that he wouldn't function as he should as the high priest. And so the people would not be ministered to. Now remember that God is the judge in this scene. And what did the Lord do? He did three things and we'll look at them in a little bit more detail later on. What he did, first of all, he rebuked Satan. And he said, Satan, you have no right to accuse any of my people. Secondly, he removed Joshua's filthy garments. And thirdly, he clothed him with new clean clothes. And he put a clean turban on his head. That was the attire for the high priest, which would say on the turban, holy to the Lord. And do you know what we have here? We have tucked away at the end of the Old Testament a lovely picture, really, of what it means to be a Christian, a picture of what God has done for us, a picture of what the New Testament calls justification by faith. But this is some 500 or so years before Jesus came. So that's what I want to look at tonight. These garments, these clothes that we will wear before God. Three points, nothing to surprise you there. The first point, our natural state. What are we like in our natural state? It's there in verse 3. Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Filth in the Bible always represents sin. Perhaps the most well-known quotation is in Isaiah 64 verse 6. We've all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy garments, dirty rags, depending on your translation. What is God saying? Even the best you can do is filthy in my sight. Our natural state is one of rebellion against God, one of disobedience towards God, and is a sinful one. Indeed, as Theologians put it, they call it original sin. Sure you're familiar with with the phrase. It means that when we are born, we are born with that bias and tendency to do those things that are displeasing to God. And any of you who have had children, got grandchildren, would see that very clearly borne out. We've never had to teach a child, have we, how to tell a lie. We have to teach them to tell the truth. We've never had to teach a child how to be greedy how to be selfish. 
We have to teach them to share with others. We've never had to teach a young child how to get angry with their brother or sister. These things come naturally to them. Where is it? Well, it's sin. And as we grow up, it becomes a little more sophisticated and it becomes deeper ingrained in us and it's there deeply rooted. Our natural state is displeasing to God. But Satan, of course, is very clever. And he will want us to see sin as something exciting, as something pleasurable, as something wonderful. Satan will come and he will dress it up. And I'm sure that there have been times in your life, as I have in mine, when temptation has come in one form or another, and you think, oh, that looks good. What if I just give that a try? It's not going to harm me. That looks as though it's something good for me, something I'll enjoy. And maybe you do something, you go somewhere that you know really you shouldn't be, but, but it won't harm, will it? And it leaves a bitter taste, and it leaves you feeling dirty and filthy inside. Because God sees sin very differently to the way that Satan sees it, and indeed to the way that usually we see it. How does God see sin? Habakkuk 1.13 You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. Isaiah 59 verse 2 Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Sin, of course, is anything less than perfection. James put it like this Whoever keeps the whole law that fails in one point, has been accountable for all of it. That includes our deeds, our thoughts, our words, everything about us. As some of you know, I spent my professional career in teaching. And to me, one of the most boring parts of teaching was marking exam papers over and over again. And I marked, oh, I don't know, tens of thousands of exam papers over the years. And I would never give 100% because I didn't believe anyone could be perfect. And one occasion, I've never forgotten it, I marked this exam paper and I thought, if I'm not careful, this person's going to get 100%. It was brilliant. Everything was right. I thought, there must be something wrong somewhere. And I looked and I found one spelling mistake. One letter missing. I thought, 99%. Can't get full marks. What was I doing? I was not believing in perfection. But when I said to that person, you got that spelling mistake there, so you haven't got 100%, you can imagine the reaction, can't you? Oh, sir, that's not fair. You can't do that. I got everything else right. Just one letter wrong. Yeah, one letter wrong. It's not perfect. Sometimes, do we feel like that with God, that God is not being fair? Look at me, I got this right, I got that right, I do these things that other people don't do, and those wrong things I'm doing, well, they're only little things really. It only has to be one minute thing, and we have failed the perfection that God requires. And what does that do to us? It makes us dirty in God's eyes, and it separates us from God. To come before him, we have to be clean on the inside and on the outside. It's a bit like when children are out maybe playing in the garden and it's been raining and it's muddy and they're rolling in the mud and the mother or father calls them in and says, 
Time to come in for tea now, or whatever it may be. And they come in, and they're all filthy all over. And what's the mother or father going to say? Before you come and sit at table to have your tea, you've got to go and get washed, and you've got to change your clothes. You're not sitting at my table looking like that. And usually, in a fairly disgruntled way, they'll go off, oh, all right then, and they'll wash their hands, and they'll come back with clean clothes so they can sit at the table. If that's true in ordinary family life, how much more true is it when we are to sit at God's table? We cannot sit there with dirty clothes or with dirty hands or dirt on the inside. Something has to happen. We must be clean on the inside and the outside. We need clean clothes and a cleansing from the sin which makes us dirty. How can it happen? Well, that was our natural state. But the answer is in the next verse, verse 4, where we see our new state. Look at verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What we need are new clothes. That's just what God has provided. We've got a picture here of what Jesus has done for us. One of our problems is this. We can't hide our sin and we can't cover it up as hard as we may try. And we do try, don't we? But God is all-seeing and God is all-knowing. But people try and cover it up in all sorts of ways. Some think there's a kind of balance whereby if your good works outweigh the bad works, then you'll be all right. Doesn't work like that. Some think if they pray a bit more, go to church a bit more often, give a bit more money to charity or whatever, then that will be all right. No, it won't. And for Christians, what particularly can come to us is that we pretend that it doesn't really matter. Well, okay, I got that wrong. I, I, I sinned then, but it doesn't really matter. It wasn't that important. Or we can persuade ourselves that sin is not really that serious. Okay, I, I did get that wrong. But Lord, remember, I have my quiet time every day this week. I read your word every day. I've prayed every day. Uh, I've been to whatever activities we're involved with. I've done this. I've done the other. No difference. We cannot hide from God. We cannot cover up our sin. It's a bit like if you see some rust, shall we say, on the bodywork of your car. If you're like me, you'll try and do it the easy way and just get a bit of paint and paint it over and say, there we are, it's gone. But it doesn't work like that, does it? Very soon that rust is going to be coming through again. And it'll be worse than it was before. It was there all the time. You just hid it for a short while. The only way to deal with that is to get a, a whole new piece for the car, a new door, a new wing, whatever it may be. The old has got to go, the new has got to come. That is just the same with us and God. The old must be replaced by something new. How can that happen? How can I be right with God and made clean? And you know, the answer is hinted at very strongly here in this chapter. If you look in, in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, you've got this wonderful promise. I will bring my servant the branch. 
That is a messianic promise. That is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we've got God speaking through Zechariah saying, I'm going to bring one who can deal with this problem. And in the next verse, he shows us how he's going to deal with it. I love this statement. The very end of verse 9. What a promise. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What day was that? The day Jesus died. The day of his crucifixion was the day when he removed the iniquity of that land in a single day. Remember how Peter put it in 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus paid that price for all those things that I have let God down in, all the things I failed him in, so that I might have a relationship with God. How does that work? Verse 4 shows us how it works. Our filthy garments are taken off us, and wonder of wonders, they are put on Jesus. He bore our sins in his body on that cross. So when we confess our sin to God and we trust in Jesus, this verse shows us the two main things that happen to us. The first is our sins are forgiven. You've got that wonderful statement there. To him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. Our sins are forgiven. Our filthy clothes are removed. They are taken away. Do you ever wonder, what does God do with our sins? When we confess them, when he takes them away, what does he do with them? Well, there's a number of verses in the Bible that tell us. I'll mention a few of them. Isaiah 38, 17. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Now, you can't see behind your back and there are no mirrors to check either. You can't see what's there. What's God saying? You can't see them anymore and I can't see them anymore. They've gone. Psalm 103, verse 12. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7, 19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Hebrews 10, 17. I will remember their sins no more. Why are these verses important? Because one of Satan's main strategies against Christians is to remind us of those sins that we have committed in the past that God has forgiven, but Satan will say, remember when you did that? Remember when you said that? How do you think that you can serve God? Why do you think that God should answer your prayers when, when you've been like that? And what Satan is doing is trying to bring up those sins that God has put in the depths of the sea, cast them behind his back, and he remembers no more. So in other words, when Satan says to us, look at what you did then, we will say, and God has forgiven them and thrown them away, and I am not guilty for those sins because Jesus died for them. Note that God doesn't say, I will forget your sins. Because if you forget something, you might remember it later on. He says, I don't remember them. That's the important thing. Let me tell you a story. True story of a priest who lived in the Philippines. And this priest, he, he, he served God the best he could. But he was troubled by one thing. He was troubled by the fact that when he was in seminary training to be a priest, 
He committed a particular sin, don't know what it was, and that troubled him. And there was a lady in his church who was a, a real believer, had a real relationship with God, and she would often say, oh, I, I talk to the Lord every day. And this priest was a little bit skeptical of that. You speak to him every day, does he speak back to you? Oh, yes, he speaks back to me. Well, he said, and he was trying her out, he said, next time you speak to the Lord, ask him, does he remember the sin that your priest committed when he was in college training? Okay, she said, I'll do that. So she went away and she prayed as usual and asked the question. And a couple of days later, met the priest again. The priest said, have you spoken to Jesus? Oh, yes. Did you ask him the question? Oh, yes. What did he answer? And his answer was, she said, I don't remember. Those words transformed that priest. When he realized that sin which had so troubled him and bothered him, which he had confessed, was remembered no more by God, no longer held against him, and his ministry was transformed. You know, sometimes as Christians, I wonder, can we take the whole concept of the forgiveness of sins too lightly? Is it something we are too familiar with? Many, many years ago, now you've got to be my age, I think, to remember this, there was a person who cropped up on the, the radio quite a lot called Marganita Lasky. Anyone remember that name? This is going back now to the 1980s. And she was a well-known humanist, secularist. She was a writer, an author, often appeared on, on panel programs, on the radio, any questions and that kind of thing. And on one occasion, she was on a panel program, a discussion, where there was a Christian on the panel as well. And she was spouting her beliefs about that there can't be a God and a secularist and humanist beliefs. And the, the Christian was showing why he believed in God. And it was good natured, but they were opposed to each other and arguing against each other. At the end of the program, she turned to this Christian and said, I envy you Christians. And he said, what? After all you've just been saying, what do you mean you envy us Christians? And she said, I have no one to forgive me. She was conscious of the wrong things that she had done. And she had no one to forgive her. Let's not take it lightly that we have someone to forgive us. Someone to cleanse our conscience. Someone to pronounce us not guilty. Your sins are removed. Forgiveness means I'm clean. I have peace with God because the price has been paid. That's the first consequence. And the second one is, we are clothed with rich garments. There in verse 4, I've taken your iniquity away, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, or rich garments, depending on your translation. The grace of God goes beyond forgiveness. He clothes us in his own righteousness. What Isaiah describes as the robe of righteousness. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 9 put it like this. He said, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not those things I'm doing, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that depends on faith. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our filthy rags but the righteousness of his son, the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. Remember these words in 2 Corinthians 5? For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pause and think on that for a moment. What is God doing with our clothes? He's removed our filthy clothes and he's put them on Jesus on the cross. What's he now doing? He's giving the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect righteousness. He's giving us a new cloak, a new robe to wear, which is the righteousness of Jesus. So when we trust in him and God looks on us, he doesn't see the mess and the filth and the dirt and the squalor. He sees the righteousness of his son. Something we receive by faith as we trust in Jesus. So our new state is sins forgiven, new clean clothes, and by faith we have a relationship with God. What a wonderful state to be in. But one last point. Not only do we have a new state, we have a new status as well. What does this mean then for us? For we who, by God's grace, have trusted in Jesus, known the forgiveness of our sins, known that robe of righteousness being put upon us, what does it mean? It means we have confidence before God. It means there is no barrier between God and us. If you look there in verse 7, the end of verse 7, God is now speaking to Joshua. Now he's got his new robe on and his filthy clothes have been removed. And he says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, have charge of my courts. And here's the phrase, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. You and I, when we belong to the Lord, have the right of access into the very presence of God himself. Because there's no barrier there between God and us. Remember the writer to the Hebrews put it like this. Let us stand with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No barrier, the right of access into the presence of God himself. But more than that, we have peace. We see that here in, back in verses 1 and 2 when Satan was trying to accuse Joshua and the Lord said to him, the Lord rebuke you. Tie that up with what Paul said in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? In other words, Satan has no right to accuse any believer of their past sins because that is why Jesus died. He has no right to accuse us and he cannot resist our prayers. As someone once wrote, we have Satan as an adversary, but Christ is our advocate, pleading before God on our behalf. If we were in a courtroom and we were being accused of our sins, we have the perfect barrister in Jesus himself who is saying, this man is not guilty because I took his sins in my body when I died on the tree. And it doesn't stop Satan from trying to accuse God's people. 
and he'll do it frequently. Usually, when we're perhaps lying in bed at night, and we can't go to sleep, and these thoughts come into our mind, oh, I remember that time when I did that, and I failed that, and I said the wrong thing there. Take a lesson from Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered the truth of justification by faith, and he had this experience of Satan coming to him often and accusing him of all these sins he committed, making Martin Luther think, have I got it right? Can I, can I tell the people about being justified by faith when, when I've done all these wrong things? And Satan will come and accuse him of this, that, and the other. And Martin Luther records how he would, usually at night when he was in bed, and what he would do is see these things come before him, and he would say, Satan, he would say, write them down for me on a piece of paper. And he would imagine now a piece of paper and his sins being written down. And he would turn to Satan and say, Satan, you've forgotten some. There's that one, there's that one, there's that one. And then he would get a big pen or whatever they used in those days, a quill, and he would put a great big line through it, and he would tear up the paper and say, they're behind God's back. They're in the depths of the sea. I bear them no more. The hymn writer put it like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Gives us peace. We have confidence. We have peace. We have assurance. Because our salvation doesn't depend on us, but on Christ. Our salvation doesn't depend on how clean we are keeping our clothes, but on that perfect faultless, spotless robe of righteousness that has been given to us when we first trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our new clothes will never become dirty. But we also have a responsibility. As the Lord said to Joshua in verse 7, a responsibility to walk in his ways, to keep his charge. A responsibility to obey him, to honour him, to serve him and to please him. Why? Because those things are evidence of being forgiven. If we are seeking to live our lives serving God, following him, obeying him, honouring him, what does it mean? It's evidence that we are no longer dressed in our filthy clothes, but in the righteousness of Jesus himself. It's evidence that we are forgiven. So come back to where I started. What shall you and I wear to stand before God? If it's our filthy rags, they're unacceptable. And it's one of those signs we were looking at with the children this morning that said no entry. There is no entry into God's kingdom that way. But if we're wearing our new clothes, the righteousness of Christ, we have free, open access. And to get those clothes, all we have to do is ask. Say to the Lord, I'm sorry for all those wrong things I've done. Thank you that Jesus died for me on that cross and he bore my sins in his body. Lord, I want to trust you and follow you. And in that moment, we're given that wonderful new robe of righteousness. It's there for the asking. So by God's grace, may we, each one of us, know what it is to exchange those filthy rags for rich garments, and to live a life befitting such people. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again tonight for your word and thank you that tucked away here in Zechariah is a lovely picture of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you so much that he went to that cross, that he bore our sins in his body, that he's taken our filthy clothes away, given us that new garment. Lord, we pray, will you grant that we may live as a thankful people, as an obedient people, as a serving people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.